And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. Today, we're going to be covering the Gambino family. This is the one that won the poll from the last episode we did on the intro to the Mafia. So I'm not going to play an intro, guys. We're going to get right into it, not waste any time. So here's a Wikipedia page for the Gambino crime family. Uh, the Gambino crime family, pronounced Gambino, is an Italian-American Mafia crime family and one of the five families that dominate organized crime activities in New York City, uh, United States, within a nationwide criminal phenomenon known as the American Mafia. The group, which went uh, through five bosses between 1910 and 1957, is named after Carlo Gambino, boss of the family at the time of the McLennan hearings in 1963, when the structure of organized crime first gained public attention. And as you guys know, this kind of came to public attention when people, <clears throat> the government was basically subpoenaing all the bosses to come in and testify. And that's kind of when the, the omerta, the code of silence, basically became public knowledge. Uh, the group's operations extend from New York and Eastern Seaboard to California. Its illicit activities include labor and destruction, racketeering, gambling, loan sharking, extortion, money laundering, prostitution, fraud, hijacking, and fencing. And if you guys notice, it says in 1963. Guess what also happened right around that time? Kennedy was assassinated. So there's a bunch of, you know, theories out there as, as far as, <clears throat> excuse me, why Kennedy was killed. But it's pretty much undoubtedly so that the mafia, the American Italian mafia to be specific, did have a hand in it, as well as some other people to include them boys, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? And some people from the CIA. And this is a fact because it's de been declassified as of the past two months or so, or so ago. So, yeah. And also, Angie here. Uh, Angie, can you pull up the... Yeah, actually, sure. introduce yourself to the people real quick. I uh, got so ahead of myself. Tell us up to the people. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's Angie here. My, na my name is Angelica, but you know, I prefer Angie because you guys don't know how to pronounce it well. And yeah, so I'm back here helping Myra co-hosted uh, the Mafia Family series that we're going to have on Thursdays. She means series, guys. Don't make fun of her. What did I say? You said serious. serious. Serious? <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's fine. It's all good. So English is our second language, guys. Whatever. Uh, so uh, she actually pulled this up for you guys here. So from a bird's eye view, guys, here's the Carlo Gambino family. Can you enlarge it for the yes. people real quick so they can see? Um, as you guys can see here, and this is why if you didn't watch our first episode, guys, Go watch make it. sure to watch it because we actually cover how to read this stuff and oh my bad yeah the the mafia organization exactly we actually explained that which is why in the first episode we it's gave the hierarchy important. the history etc so that when we cover all the families you kind of can just hit the ground running so anyways you guys can see here you got the boss which is the top guy you got the uh underboss joseph uh Biano, joseph Biondo. and then you got the consigliere joseph ricombano, ricombano. and then all ricombano. the capos etc so this is kind of a bird's eye view guys of the organization we're going to go ahead and react to a documentary I have here that goes into more detail. But this is kind of like just a quick little preliminary look at the Gambino crime family. And, uh, and obviously, this family is one of the most famous ones because your boy John Gotti was also uh, a member of the Gambino family, actually took on as boss before his arrest in the early 90s. So, uh, yeah. Got the successors and everything. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool chart. We'll put the link in the description for y'all. Uh, but yeah, let's get into it, guys. So this is a documentary right here. It's called The Gambino's First Family of Crime, Season 1, Episode 1. Let's get into it. The Gambinos. No crime family in America has been as powerful, as wealthy, or as treacherous. The founder, Carlo Gambino, had the intelligence of a fox, the strength of a lion, and the nose of a hawk. This guy was calling the shots. And those well, he definitely had, did have the nose of a hawk, guys. You guys can see here. He had a beak on him, man. 
<laughs> yeah, I had a, I got a big nose too, so I can always definitely see one of them. Shots ended in murder. How he himself. And no, he was not one of them boys, guys. Uh, he was Sicilian, and we're going to get into his history as well. And this guy, Carlo Gambino, guys, was one of the few mafia bosses that actually died of natural causes, not in prison or killed through <clears throat> some type of murder for hire situation. So, and he's look, he's revered pretty much as one of the best bosses of all time. Avoided being murdered is uh, an astonishing mystery to me. He ruled quietly, controlling so many rackets in New York City, he had more power than the mayor. His successor. Guys, let that sink in. At his height, he had more power than the mayor. That should let you guys know what kind of money these guys were rolling with. Paul Castellano, Facts. tempered yep. businessman who had not paid his dues on the street. Guys who had been in the trenches, robbing and stealing and killing and hijacking and everything. That's John Gotti on the left right here, guys, surveillance footage. You know, for years said, hey. And the short guy with the little striped jacket there was Sammy Gravano, a.k.a. Sammy the Bull. What about me? The new boss was lonely and fearful. When I say to him, why you have been lonely? Say, I only have money in my pocket. People like me die in the street. He knew all too well. Then came the Gambino boss straight from Central Casting. You know, I always feel good. And quick little fun fact for you guys here, okay? I actually lived in New York when John Gotti was the boss. I actually lived in New York City, and I remember as a child seeing this guy's face all over the papers, man. Well, you old. Was crazy. When was this? <laughs> I knew you were going to talk some shit, midget. <laughs> uh, this was in the early 90s. Early, early, mid, mid, early 90s. Like, I was, I was born in 1990, so I remember seeing him, you know, back in like 90, what, three, four, like six, seven, seven maybe around like 95, 96, I would say. K-O-D. Yeah, there you go. The fact that you remember. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. But he was on every newspaper. I remember because my dad used to read the New York Post every day religiously. And John Gotti's face was always smeared Printed all over newspaper? It. Back in the day, yeah. That's the only way to get, you know. Of course. Oldie. Yeah, okay. I know you ain't talking, midget. He walked into a <laughs> restaurant dressed impeccably. It was an event. And everybody stopped and looked around. And John Gotti tells Sammy, see what I, what I tell you? Everybody loves us. But in the end... Dapper Don would take the family down in flames. You know they're going to try and keep you in jail. They say you're in danger while you're out. Men rode carriages through the quaint... One hundred years ago, well-dressed men rode carriages through the quaint cobblestone streets that wind through the city of Palermo, Sicily and converge on its ancient town April square. Many of these well-dressed men belong to the Mafia, otherwise known as the Honored Society, a criminal brotherhood that used codes of honor, millions of lira, and above all, violence to control every aspect of daily life throughout Sicily. These so-called men of respect had been a law unto themselves for centuries. So it's no surprise that Palermo has been the birthplace of many powerful mafia bosses. On August 24th, 1902, a boy was born who one day would build the most powerful crime syndicate in the world. His name was Carlo, Carlo Gambino. 
Carlo was born into a prosperous and well-connected family. Many of his relatives were in the mafia. Mamma mia! Oh Carlo God. grew up sheltered by the mafia. I couldn't resist. Yeah, in a part of the city so dominated by the honored society that it was off limits even to police and the military. Like others his age, young Carlo looked up to his mafia elders. The men of respect had everything a man could want. Power and money. They were treated like royalty. As a teenager, Carlo watched them stroll along the streets of the city in their beautifully tailored suits. All the men would take off their hats to them, doff their hats, and the women would curtsy and kiss their hands. And he said, my God, how can, how can you get to be one of these guys? The man who made the biggest impression on young Carlo was the head of the Honored Society and one of the most powerful. Makes no difference, uh, you know, American crime movies, you know, like Boys in the Hood, whatever. They see these D-boys making all this money, whatever, and then they want to get into that life. Same thing going down in Sicily in a different time. Full men in Sicily, Don Vito Cacioferro. Don Vito was both charismatic and fearless, but it was his criminal intuition that Carlo idolized most. Don Vito perfected the art of extortion. Where earlier mafiosi had pillaged and destroyed the businesses who would not cooperate with them, Don Vito saw a greater opportunity. In charging moderate fees for mafia protection, the businessmen could operate without fear, so long as they paid Don Vito his share. The energetic and ambitious Carlo wanted to be part of the action. He dropped also, guys, I really, if you haven't seen episode one of this Mafia series where we go over the hierarchy, etc., I heavily suggest you go and watch it before you finish watching this because, as you can see here, we're going through the history, and this might not make sense to some of you guys watching this mm -hmm. unless you saw the first episode where we talk about the Mafia's origins in Sicily. There are some more... terms that you won't understand. Exactly. If you don't watch the video, yeah. Exactly. So, because this right now, we're going over mafia history only specific to the Gambino family, not the overall La Cosa Nostra Italian mafia as you know it. Okay. And again, like I told y'all before, this is why I was putting this off. The Italian mafia is a monster. Mm -hmm. So, if you want to properly do it, you need to be able to separate history versus Gambinos versus Lucchese versus Colombo. Because if you want to do this, organization justice you got to break it down family by family so again if you guys have not seen it already go watch episode one before you finish watching this because this is only going to give you the gambino perspective out of school as a teenager and with the help of his family's connections got a job as an enforcer for don vito if a businessman failed to pay his protection money on time carlo would arrange an accident for a young yeah an accident forget about it <laughs> criminal carlos looks accident quote unquote were hardly threatening he was only five foot seven of average build and he did not parade around in fancy suits his could you imagine this guy with the big nose walks in and freaking throws a brick through your freaking business then next thing you know hey forget about it pay the money asshole pay the money <laughs> Only intimidating feature was his seven. prominent nose, which looked like a hawk's beak. He also had a oh, mischievous me. grin, which became his trademark. Carlo was shy and reserved, yet he lived by a creed which would take him to the top of a criminal empire. 
one of the great the lines that he uttered was, you know, you have to be like a lion and a fox. The fox is smart enough to recognize traps, and the lion is strong enough to uh, scare away the wolves. You'll be like a lion and a fox, and, uh, you know, no one will ever beat you. Carlo proved to Don Vito and other men of respect that he was both a lion and a fox, carrying out all their orders with ruthlessness and cunning. They immediately recognized in Carlo a superior intelligence. Uh, he was known as a man of great shrewdness from an early age. It's a quality in Italy which they call furberia, shrewdness, the kind of intelligence needed to pull off major crimes. At the age of 19, Carlo's hard work and efforts were rewarded with a formal induction into the honored society, his boyhood dream come true. But now, events outside Palermo would begin to shape his life. In the early 1920s, fascism was gaining popularity throughout Italy. Its leader, Benito Mussolini, had little tolerance for the honored society. One of his objectives, to destroy the mafia. So a lot of young mafiosi thought that there's no This wasn't mentioned in episode one, but yes, this was a huge impact on guys getting the hell out of Italy and going to the United States where there were more opportunities. And by opportunities, I mean being able to commit crimes. Mamma mia! <laughs> a future here to end up in jail. And if they had any connections in America, they used them. And Carlo had plenty of them. Part of his mother's family, the Castellanos, a powerful mafia clan, had already moved to New York. With his future at home in jeopardy, he set his sights on America, where his New York relatives could introduce him to a criminal life full of golden opportunity. And as you guys know, Paul Castellano is going to take, on, take uh, over the organization later. So as you guys can see, there's a very strong connection with everybody in the family. Nepotism is huge. So, on a November day in 1921, the young Carlo was smuggled aboard a freighter bound for America. His family had paid the captain a substantial sum to escort the privileged young man across the Atlantic. A month later, the ship pulled into Norfolk, Virginia, with a cargo of wine, anchovies, and olives. Dressed in a Sunday best, one lone passenger slowly emerged. Carlo Gambino, all of 19 years old, had arrived. And he strutted off as if he owned the world, and he was met by his Castellano relatives who whisked him up to New York. He made him a spectacular entry into the United States. You know, it wasn't some scruffy uh, little mobster. Uh, he was treated as a prince. A prince with... And guys, keep in mind, he came to the United States when? In 1921. And what was going on during that time period? I'll tell you what, prohibition which at this point, them boys and a bunch of other mafia guys were already making money doing this. Princely ambitions, and he would let nothing and no one stand in his way. Just before Christmas, 1921, the teenaged Carlo Gambino set foot on American soil and began moving up the mafia ladder of success the old-fashioned way, through hard work and violence. But Carlo had a leg up on other gangsters of his generation. His American relatives, already members of New York's bustling underworld, rented him a small apartment near the Brooklyn waterfront. They wasted no time in introducing Carlo to the rackets. 
It was the era of prohibition, and the public was thirsty for illegal booze. All over America, organized crime was supplying it and reaping the profits. Some of New York's busiest bootleggers. Guys, these bootleggers were making billions of dollars in U.S. dollars today, guys. That's how much they were making money. What was that? What are bootleggers? Oh, but like uh, guys that make fake alcohol. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, we talked about that yes. in the other On the, video. In episode one. Yeah. Were Carlos' first cousins, the Castellanos. The Castellano family had a, a small trucking business. The truck naturally, like so many other small trucking business, was used to transport booze. So he became, in effect, a rum runner. And Gambino was both a driver and sometimes he would serve as a shotgun because different uh, bootleg guys used to hijack each other's trucks. In his new criminal career, Carlo met one of the local mafia leaders, Joe the Boss Masseria. This old-time Sicilian man of respect. And guys, in the first episode, we talk about more de uh, details with Masseria and the war that ensued between him and Maranzano. Go back and watch the first episode if you if haven't you already, guys. Mm -hmm. Ran a big bootlegging racket. Carlo, sensing an opportunity to move ahead, went to work for Masseria. Carlo was just a very acute businessman and uh, organizer, and he soon became indispensable to whoever he was working for. But Gambino was treacherous at heart. He knew that clinging to a single boss could mark him for death by a rival gang. Besides, his own driving ambition left no room for lasting loyalty to anyone, including Joe the boss. In the early 1930s, Carlo's boss was locked in a bloody turf war with a longtime Sicilian rival named Salvatore Maranzano. The younger gangsters, including Carlo, thought the battle was tearing the mafia apart. To include Lucky Luciano, who you guys are going to see here right now. One of Carlo's friends, Lucky Luciano, devised a clever plan to eliminate the boss. Lucky told Carlo about it and made him an offer. And Charlie Lucky said, Lucky, well, you got an option. You can come with us and we're going to be the winning side. This was a war. And the war, guys, that they're talking about is called uh, the Castellanese War. Uh, okay. Castellanese War. Probably <laughs> butchering that name, but you guys get the idea. Uh, this war was pivotal in the formation of the modern mafia, as you guys know now, from the Sopranos, Goodfellas, etc. What was going on? Carlo the Fox quietly supported Lucky's plan. In doing so, he positioned himself for future leadership with little personal risk. Carlo's motivation became uh, the motivation of practically everybody in those days. Get as rich as you can, as fast as you can. And don't worry about all the old rules and uh, codes of the Sicilian Mafia. On April 15, 1931, Luciano invited Masseria to lunch at a Coney Island restaurant. As Lucky excused himself from the table, four gunmen walked in and put an end to Joe the boss. With the murder of Masseria, a number of... That leaving an ace card on the dead individual's hands was a tactic employed back by then to show, you know, this wasn't, this is the hand they were dealt in life. His men, including Carlo Gambino, joined forces with the new boss, Salvatore Maranzano, but not for long. Maranzano was very happy to have these really smart, bright young thugs 
working for him. What Maranzano didn't realize is that those bright young thugs were plotting his murder so they could take over everything. Mamma mia! And that's what they did. On orders from Charlie Lucky, Maranzano was shot and stabbed to death in his office. A new generation led by which I talked about this in more detail, guys, in the past episode and show a video clip of it. Luciano was now in charge, and Carlo had played his cards just right. Cards being dealt by Carlo's friend Luciano, who turned the underworld into a corporation. With And the main reason why they killed Maranzano, guys, just as a quick little reminder, is because Maranzano, when he took power from Esseria, he called himself... Uh, the boss of all bosses, right? Or the capo of all the... Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So basically that caused a lot of rift in the organization. So Lucky, and yet this guy Maranzano actually put a hit out on Lucky. So Lucky said, let me get to him first. He ended up getting him killed by some of Mayor Lansky's them boys, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And once he took power, what he ended up doing, and Lucky Luciano, I mean by this, what he ended up doing was sharing that power with all the other crime families and saying, let's start a commission where it's everyone like a has committee. all their own organizations mm -hmm. and dispersing the power. So what he was able to do, which was very smart of Lucky, by the way, was take the target off his back and have the target be put on the organizations together to keep from them from killing him yeah. as being the top guy. Because his main thing was, I just want Maranzano out so that I could work with my boy, Marilansky, who's a part of them boys, and all my other uh, you know, organized criminal uh, individuals who aren't necessarily Italian. So Lucky looked at Maranzano as a, basically a block to his path to earn more money. So they took him out. Once he got power, he's like, no, nah, I don't want to be the boss of our bosses, guys. Make your own families, you know, have your own boss structure. We'll meet every couple of years to iron out issues and make sure everyone gets paid. But I don't want the power. I just want the money. So this was actually very smart by Luciano. And that's why he's credited a lot of times as being the godfather of organized crime. Each major gang getting a vote on the board of directors Carlo was assigned to the boss who controlled the Brooklyn waterfront, Vincent Mangano. From there, Carlo began plotting a course to create his own criminal empire. Under Mangano, Gambino learned to run a variety of mob rackets, ranging from loan sharking to numbers to cargo theft. He was a good earner for the mob and therefore entitled to respect. And the bottom line in any mafia endeavor, whatever it is, is... How much money do you make? Profit is of the supreme importance. Carlo's knack for business soon paid off. Just 29 years old, he earned a promotion to capo, or captain, in charge of his own crew. One of the first men he chose for the crew was his teenage cousin, Paul Castellano. The son of a Brooklyn numbers runner, Paul was also born into organized crime. Carlo, having learned firsthand how mafia wars are waged, knew that a mobster should be wary of his underlings. And he knew he could trust Paul, a blood relative. The less time Gambino spent watching his back, the more time he could devote to planning his rise to power. He only really trusted the people who had been with him all his life. And he built up this little wall where nobody could get in who wasn't a blood relative. Blood ties would be of the highest significance to Carlo throughout his life. Some would say too significant. In 1932, at the age of 30, he This is why nepotism was practiced so hard in the mafia to prevent from getting whacked by your underlings who want to overtake your position in power. Solidified his bond with the Castellano family when he took the unorthodox step of marrying Paul Castellano's sister, 
Catherine. It was amazing that uh, Carlo Gambino married uh, Catherine Castellano because she was his first cousin. And as a good Catholic, you're not supposed to do that. But the Castellanos were extremely powerful in the Mafia. He multiplied his power, and that's what he was after. Carlo and Catherine settled into a modest Brooklyn row house. Together they raised three sons and a daughter. By all accounts, Carlo was a devoted husband and family man. But marriage and family could not curb his appetite for power and money. The repeal of Prohibition in 1933 brought harder times for many mobsters, drying up their lucrative bootlegging operations. But Carlo saw a new path to profit in a new racket, contraband liquor. By dodging liquor taxes, Carlo could undercut his legitimate competitors. With this scheme, Carlo made the first of his several fortunes. His success did not go unnoticed by the law. In 1937, he was convicted of tax evasion in connection with running a million-gallon illegal still in Philadelphia. But Carlo somehow managed to... And that was really all the government could get them. Remember, guys, back then, Rico wasn't a thing. So the only way they were really able to go after these guys was for not paying taxes on all the money they made, which they knew where they were making illegally. So this is way before the Giuliani era of you know the mid-'80s, where they actually had the tool of Rico to take these guys down beat the rap. He got off with a suspended sentence. By 1941, with America entering World War II, Carlo was busy devising ways to make money off it. As part of the war effort, the government began rationing essential goods like meat, chocolate, nylons, and gasoline. Government-issued ration stamps were as good as gold. So Gambino and his crew found ways to steal them and hoard them. Bam. I tell you guys all the time, when things go down, criminals always look at it as an opportunity to make money nefariously. And this is what made the mafia so powerful. They did any and everything to earn money for the organization scamming. These dudes were the original scammers, you know, from back in the day. Every scammer you know now that has these credit card, you know, the hitting and all this other shit, they got that inspiration from these boys right here, man. When the government began protecting the ration stamps by storing them in banks, Gambino simply bribed corrupt officials to steal them for him. It wasn't long before Carlo made his next black market million. But he would not stop there. Carlo saw opportunities everywhere, including a business few mobsters would touch, gay bars. He didn't personally go in, in there and pat people on the ass. He, he realized that a lot of uh, gay men were lawyers, <laughs> doctors, everything. And these people at that time were much more susceptible to blackmail than they are now. This wasn't oh, that they were supporting the gay lifestyle. They were supporting their own lifestyle. And they were blackmailing a lot of, uh, a lot of people. By the 1950s... Ha! <laughs> gay! Oh, hey, my God. They were making money, baby. <laughs> Carlo had established an excellent <laughs> reputation as a big earner for the Mangano crime family, but his path to further advancement seemed blocked. In 1951, his boss, Vincent Mangano, mysteriously disappeared. Many suspected that Mangano's underboss and Carlo's rival, Albert Anastasia, was responsible. Anastasia took control of the crime family. Nicknamed the Lord High Executioner, 
Anastasia was one of the most feared gangsters of his time. He headed up the infamous mafia hit squad known as Murder Incorporated. Though Anastasia made Carl... Ah! Now y'all see where Irv Gotti and Ja Rule and all them boys came from. <laughs> the original Murder Inc. over here. Follow his underboss in 1956, Carlo knew he was unlikely to ever become boss through natural succession. He and Anastasia were both in their mid-fifties. Anastasia could easily outlive him. Unlike his boss, Carlo Gambino was selective in his use of violence. But when he saw no other way, he would not hesitate to kill. Carlo was determined to reach the top, so Anastasia had to go. It was that simple. Carlo set up the hit. On October 25th, 1957, Anastasia went for a shave at his usual barber shop at the Park Sheraton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. As a hot towel was placed over his face, two gunmen rushed in and shot him five times. The last penetrating his brain. Now, no one stood in Carlo's way. He was the boss. His wits and tenacity had gotten him to the top of the murder was way easier to get back with get away with guys back then because there was no forensics police weren't as sophisticated agencies didn't talk to each other there were no rico laws in place so it was fairly easy guys to carry out a carry out a murder back then you know no cell phones that can tell you where your location is like back then murder was so simple this is why most serial killers right the the most prolific serial killers pretty much were all from 1960 right with the zodiacs and etc all the way up until the early 90s with people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Why? Well, forensic evidence really didn't get starting getting used until the late 80s, mid 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So it was still a relatively new thing. So murder um, was very easy to get, get away with back then, guys. America was a very dangerous place back then. The Mangano crime family. Soon, he would transform that family into his very own Gambino dynasty. By the age of 55, Carlo Gambino had finally achieved his lifelong ambition to become boss of a crime family. He had connived and killed his way to the top. Now it was time to exploit his power in the service of that most basic mafia principle, breaking the law to make money. The crime family, which now bore his name, already controlled the Brooklyn waterfront. But like any good executive, Carlo knew the future lay in diversification. He expanded into a wide range of rackets, gambling, construction bid rigging, loan sharking, even securities fraud on Wall Street. In 1962, Carlo once again used bloodlines to strengthen his hold on organized crime. He arranged the marriage of his eldest son, Tommy, to the daughter of fellow New York crime boss, Thomas Lucchese. The marriage soon gave Gambino access to yet another lucrative and more modern racket. See, smart as hell, aligning himself with powerful people through marriage, man, and relationships. Lucchese started doing a tremendous business by hijacking freight from JFK Airport, corrupting the unions that handle freight. And then he cut his friend, Carlo Gambino, in on that racket because Carlo Gambino's son had married his daughter. Gambino had infiltrated what had become the nation's greatest port of entry, and the cash poured in. 
His men bribed airport employees to tip them off when valuable shipments were arriving. Gambino drivers were there to haul them away. Gambino expanded his criminal empire by taking control of yet another racket, extorting the new... And uh, see, guys, see how creative these guys are when making money? Now you guys are seeing why I want to split this up by family, because different families were getting money in different ways, and the Gambinos were notorious for, for you know, messing with um, the airport, stealing cargo and stuff like that, and garments, which we're going to see how they made money in this industry. Really interesting stuff, guys. New York garment industry, an industry responsible for 70% of all the clothes sold in the U.S. By infiltrating the small but powerful truckers' unions, Gambino could effectively demand a percentage of every garment sold. If the businesses did not pay up, their goods would not get to market. Following the old mafia tradition of secrecy, or omerta, Gambino conducted business in his Brooklyn home in code to foil any attempts by law enforcement to eavesdrop on his meetings. If he and his capos met in the meeting room in his house to decide whether uh, a certain guy should be killed or not, the scene would, be, would go something like this. One of the capos would get up and say, Froggy legs. And Carla would go like this. That meant the end of him. That meant the way he'd be killed. You know. He would just nod his head. <laughs> he would never open his mouth. The tactic worked. Efforts to record Gambino came up empty. And guys, here's his house right here. Just so you guys can kind of get a glimpse here. 2230, if I'm not mistaken, Ocean Parkway Drive. And this is what it looks like today in Brooklyn. And you know what's funny, guys? I'm about to give you guys a treat right now. This, guys, is where I grew up as a kid. Check this out. I am going to... Let me see here. 20... You in Connecticut? And when I lived in New York. Oh, in New York. Yeah, okay. when I was a child. This is where I grew up. Uh, damn it. Where? Brooklyn? What? You were in Brooklyn? <laughs> no, Brooklyn, yeah. Brooklyn. Uh, let me see here. Hit directions, yeah. Directions, bam. You're gonna show. You're gonna show your. House. I mean, I left it. And this is where I was as a kid. Check that out, guys. I lived 16 minutes away from one of the fucking most notorious crime bosses ever. This is why I grew up as a kid, guys. And the reason why I even thought about this because I remember as a kid vividly, right? Ocean Parkway Drive. This is the street you had to take to get the, to um, Coney Island. So I remember going there, there as a child. So if you look at it right here, you got this parkway and you would have to go all the way down back this way to go to where I used to live, right? And then you'd get on this road and Coney Island was this way, if I'm not mistaken. But my house was back over this way. So let's go ahead and try looking at a street view. That's crazy, bro. <laughs> I only noticed it because in the documentary it said Ocean Drive there. You're getting nostalgic. Yeah, this is very nostalgic. <laughs> you guys want to see Myron Gaines' old stopping grounds right here as a kid. Oh, wow. This house right here, guys. This house. It's where I lived there. as a child, and it's still there to this day. And I'll never forget, my dad was a cab driver, 
right? And he got robbed so many times because back then Brooklyn was so dangerous. Still is. And it still is. Not to the same degree as it was in the 80s and 90s, though. They really cracked down. But we were on the second floor, and uh, the landlord lived on the first floor. I don't know if they, they're still there. Muslim family, Yugoslavian, actually. Um, it'll be crazy if they actually see this video one day. But either way, um, <laughs> we, my dad would go up the stairs with his cast, and my mom would help him. And this is why, That's bro, so I, cute. I honestly have, like, no sympathy for people that were born here that are bums. Because my dad used to drive the cab every night, been robbed multiple times. One time he got hit by a car, and <clears throat> when they tried to rob him, broke his leg, drove the cab with a broken leg and cast, and he would come up these stairs, and my mom would come down every night, get him, and walk him up the stairs to get up to the second floor, guys. What is so, this down there? This is bringing back so many fucking memories. What was that? What is this down there? Down. Yeah, this. Oh, yeah, so this used to be, growing up, I remember, this was like a little storage thing that they would use, which is crazy. Oh, okay. Uh, the landlord would. But I remember this grocery store right here, okay, was uh, where I used to always go to get candy and shit like that. And I'll <laughs> tell y'all a funny story. I've never told this story before in my life. So you guys are about to hear, get a treat right now. I remember me and my sister were sitting on this balcony one day, not balcony, like this window. And we were fucking with like the people walking by and we were like throwing like fucking water balloons at them. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, we were throwing water balloons at them, fucking like kick, uh, you know, fruit and shit. And they get hit. And they're like, what the fuck? And they like look back and say, you motherfucker, I'm going to get you. And we just be up in the window laughing at them and shit. It was hilarious. And then my dad found out, right, because he owned a mechanic shop down the street over here, right? <laughs> this mechanic shop right here, guys. Okay. My dad used to own this, guys, right? It used to be called Amru Car Care, right? Oh, wow. Yep. My dad named it after me. Hilarious. I'm, I'm doxing myself. I don't give a fuck. Y'all already know what it is. When? Uh, Back in the 1800s? This is the in the 90s. Okay. This is like 90. We left in New York City in 99. Uh, he opened this up, I think, in like 94, 95. Boy. So he comes back, right? I wasn't even born. Uh, he walks back, as you can see the distance, and he finds out that we have been throwing water balloons at people. So he comes, right, sees the water spots on the fucking corner over here. That's how close it was. And he starts losing his shit. And he comes upstairs and whoops the fuck out of us. <laughs> he literally whooped the fucking shit out of us, guys. I will never forget that ass whooping, bro. And it was truly a lesson in life not to fuck with people. And to this day, I remember that shit. Bro, W parents beating their kids. Almost 30 years later, I remember this story vividly because I did something so fucking dumb I deserved to get my ass kicked. I was like maybe six or seven years old at the time. Come on. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. were kids. So maybe seven or eight, somewhere in that range. But hilarious, man. Really good times. The fact, like, ooh, that just went down memory lane right there. But there you go, guys. Like the goddamn video. Let's get back to <laughs> Carlo Gambino, my neighbor, now that I know. <laughs> we very rarely spoke at meetings. So, you know, it was hard to it was hard to wiretap him. He was shrewd that way. And of course, that was the successful way to be. The boss also kept a low profile in his personal life. For all his wealth and power, he lived modestly and eluded the media. Yeah. And that area, guys, he lives in is a middle class neighborhood. You know, you wouldn't think a mob boss of his stature making the kind of money he made would be there just, you know, uh, chilling. Gambino was hard to get on your radar screen. He did not go bouncing at night. He didn't keep, you know, a routine schedule. You know, he was an elusive character. 
and I think very deliberately so. He was a low-profile character, and very successfully so, because his invisibility ultimately was his power. Mr. Gambino, do you have any idea why you've been brought here? His desire for anonymity aside, Gambino could not resist one public indulgence. Here was a guy who went to so much trouble to live in the small, modest house, who went to so much trouble to not have the big, long, shiny black Cadillac. He kind of had this gray or dark, you know, Oldsmobile. And the, uh, the license plate was CG1, I think. But he had to allow himself that one little trapping of power, that one little vanity, the license plate with his initials. Back then, it showed you had a little juice. By the mid-60s, Carla was moving into his mid-60s, aging gracefully and looking more like a grandfather than a mafia godfather. He liked to give the appearance of a harmless, humble old immigrant. I was at the Westchester Premier Theatre, and I was introduced to Carlo Gambino. And he said, pleasure to meet you, very polite old gentleman. He spoke with a very heavy um, accent. He was wearing an overcoat, top hat. You would never know who he was. If it wasn't brought to your attention, you'd say, oh, a nice little old Italian man. Right. If you met Carlo oh, Gambino. Can you, can you, you do? Yeah, I got you. Um, and this is why <laughs> he was able to get away for so long. Looks harmless. What was that, Angie? No, I was going to ask you to, to do an impression of an Italian accent. Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close to the original, right? <laughs> he was going to be sleeping with the fishes. I got a funny story to tell y'all actually here uh, later on in this podcast. With the fishes? Yeah, that's a phrase I use all the time. I got a funny story I'll tell the audience when we hit maybe 30 minutes left in the show. I'll t remind me, I'll tell I'll the funny story. You, okay. Say, this guy looks like Geppetto, the shoemaker with Pinocchio. His demeanor was so low-key <laughs> and so grandfatherly. It was incredible he was what he was. Yeah, he looks One like sign of Carlo's high-powered business life was his strong addiction to coffee. Mm -hmm. When he went to these cafes, he drank from a bottomless cup. I couldn't believe that anybody could drink that kind of black coffee and not get a jolt of adrenaline that would drive you over, the, over a cliff. He told me how many cups he used to drink a day. He used to drink a dozen cups of black coffee a day. The outwardly mild manner did not fool those who knew Carlo well, allies and enemies alike. Carlo Gambino, his middle name was Treachery. He was the most treacherous mafia boss of them all. You know, he would not hesitate to kill someone who would help him very much. By the late 60s, the Gambino crime family had swelled to 25 crews with a total of about 800 men. That's crazy, guys. Carlo Gambino had arguably yeah. become Facts. the most powerful of New York. <laughs> you think that a man who never became an American citizen, who never got out of high school in Italy, could assemble this gigantic empire worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, uh, a conglomeration of rackets, 30, 40, 50 rackets during his lifetime, and it took some brains. The Don. Meanwhile, stupid Americans broke as hell, speaking English, taking handouts. L Americans. <laughs> and earned the respect of those around him, and they were careful to show it. When in Little Italy, he always stopped by Ferrara's bakery for espressos and cannoli. 
There he would hold court, dispensing advice and favors. And the thing is, guys, is a lot of people think like, you know, the Italian mafia, all they do is criminal, criminal stuff. A lot of these bosses, guys, actually operated legitimate businesses as well. It's just that, you know, greed always gets the better of us and you want to make money in other ways. And sometimes you got to break the law to do so. But, you know, this goes to show <clears throat> that if he could do it, anybody can. Talk about the patron. Don't be a criminal, though. <laughs> nice and somebody. I mean, the people would come in, yeah, they, they would fall over themselves to kiss his ring. It would be like visiting the Pope. In one of his rare nights on the town, Carlo took in a performance by Frank Sinatra at the Westchester Theater. Sinatra may have been the star, but it was Gambino who received the royal treatment. Sinatra invited him and his entire group into the dressing room between the two shows Sinatra was putting on. The second show was going to start like at, say, 10 o'clock, for example. Right? It started at 10.40 that night because Sinatra... Uh, didn't want to chase him out of the room. I mean, it was that kind of respect. Man. Yeah, guys, this dude had crazy respect. Even Michael Francis, guys, who you guys know, um, former couple for the Colombo crime family, I think he made a video talking about the top bosses that, you know, ran the mafia. Pretty much Carlo Gambino was the number one guy on his list. So this goes to show uh, elite-level type boss maneuvers by a mafia head honcho. Because he was one of the few that never went Man, to, he looks you know, like my grandfather. extended time or was killed. Yeah, I know. And, and he has that disarming look as well. <laughs> there was something. Carlo's dedication to the crime family was matched by his devotion to his other family at home. To insulate his eldest son, Tommy, from his own violent world, Carlo sent him to Manhattan College, a rarity among the sons and daughters of mob bosses. Carlo was extremely close to his wife, Catherine who never asked too many questions and, in her own way, proved quite an asset to the boss. Her warmth softened even the toughest wise guys who came to call on Gambino. She would offer you an espresso coffee and she would invariably ask you how your family was and uh, how your charming children were. She completely Aww. disarmed you, you know? She melted you. He was a sweet you were going to go in there pretty tough, you know, trying to make a deal or scare uh, the boss. And um, by the time you left Catherine Gambino, you were a marshmallow. Catherine helped Carlo keep the appearance of a decorous and respectable household. But mere appearance could not fool the feds. They knew Gambino was the biggest crook in the country, and they kept his home under constant surveillance. There was a marked police car parked in front, right in front. And on the door it said, Organized Crime Control Bureau. A marked police car with um, two plainclothesmen sitting in it. And this was the police department. <laughs> that was probably Carlo Gambino's response to them sitting outside his house, bro. And this was, was back when, when Rico was didn't Yeah, existed. way before. Yeah, way before. Yeah. Of saying, okay, you know, this is our harassment. You know, we're telling everybody, all your neighbors. Rico wasn't created until like the 70s, 70s and then yeah, actually implemented until like the 80s. Who you are. The end of the 60s marked the beginning of the decline in Gambino's fortunes. In 1969, a Gambino associate by the name of John Gotti and his brother Gene were caught hijacking. Probably one of the most famous Gambino eventual crime bosses. A cargo truck at JFK airport. The incident didn't disrupt family business for long, but it brought more unwelcome attention to the Godfather. A year later, Carlo was a...
And you're going to see this as a recurring trend, guys, with John Gotti. John Gotti did a terrible job of being uh, sticking to Armerta, basically that code of science. Everyone knew he was a mob boss. Everyone knew he was crook. The cameras were always in his face. He brought a lot of heat to the mafia. Again in the spotlight, the boss was charged with masterminding an armed robbery. They were holding up armored cars, Chase Manhattan armored cars, and he was actually arrested, indicted and arrested, and was uh, supposed to go to trial. Carlo and his attorneys succeeded in getting one delay after another. But the law was not Carlo's only worry. His wife, Catherine, had been diagnosed with cancer. In 1971, she died. Carlo's troubles were not over. Frustrated with delays in the armed robbery case, the government pushed to deport Gambino to Sicily as an illegal alien. But each time he was about to be sent back to Sicily, Carlo's heart troubles would conveniently get worse. When doctors... My man is smart. He activated that trap card. You triggered my trap card! Heart attack from 12 cups of coffee a day. Finally gave feds the green light. Gambino's connection stepped in to save the day. They were all set to deport him, and uh, all of a sudden, the uh, word comes down, blocking this. Gambino's people made a deal with two very powerful congressmen, and the deal was that they would be paid $1,000 a month for life if Gambino was allowed to stay here. And Carlo, what? Could you imagine these That's fucking Italian guys, like, walking into the Capitol and be like, hey, buddy, we need you to do us a favor, okay? Uh, all those crimes that Carlo did that y'all got him on, you know, I need y'all to forget about it. Or else we're going to break your fucking kneecaps, okay? So the guy ain't going back to Italy. That's and then crazy. they're just like, mamma mia. Next thing you know, he's free. <laughs> I need some congressman to do that for me too. Yep, yep. That just goes to show their power, man. Dudes could literally walk into a fucking government building, tell the fucking... <laughs> Law enforcement and government. Oh, his crimes? Forget about it. <laughs> you guys better not fucking deport him. He's allowed to stay. Or you'll be sleeping with the fucking fishes. <laughs> but the years had taken a toll on him. As his heart weakened, he grew increasingly frail. On October 15, 1976, Carlo died of a heart attack while watching a New York Yankees game at his summer home on Long Island. Oh, How man. he himself avoided being murdered is uh, an astonishing mystery to me because he had harmed so many tough mafia bosses and yet no one ever laid a, laid a hand on him. Carlo yes. Gambino had successfully led the crime family for 20 years wow. and left a criminal dynasty that would far outlive him, all without serving a single day in prison. His funeral was a spectacle drawing mourners from New York and around the country. My guess is there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people who walked through there and paid their respects. I mean, he was a legend. I've always said, guys, look at the amount of people that attend a man's funeral and you'll see that man's impact on the world. After the death of the patriarch, the search for a new direction would carve a bloody trail through the Gambino crime family. Following the death of boss Carlo Gambino, there was strife within the crime family, strife which Carlo himself created. Just before his death, Carlo had picked a successor. 
in making this fateful decision about the future of his criminal empire, Carlo, like the mythical King Lear, set off a chain of events that would eventually bring the family down. His own sons were not in the running. None of them had positions of sufficient seniority in the family. But bloodlines were still paramount to Carlo, so he chose his 61-year-old first cousin and brother-in-law, Paul Castellano. Big Paulie, as he was known, was more a businessman than a street mobster. He wasn't a button man, he didn't kill anybody. And so what does he know? You know, he's never been alone. A button man, guys, is a slang term <clears throat> for a hitman in the mafia. Shark and uh, so what does he know? But Paul was family. A half century earlier, the powerful Castellano clan back in Sicily had helped Carlo get a foothold in the New York underworld. Exactly, um, they don't you, forget. Marion, can you, can you show this for a minute? Show your screen? Okay. Yeah, if you guys see the this, so here is Paul Castellano. He used to be a capo, okay? So he basically skipped this. Right. Uh, to... Well, yeah, that's the next path, though, is to be a capo from... To be underboss. But you're, yeah, but you see? But he won't wait quick. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, and he became the capo di to di capi. Well, not Basically. the boss of all bosses. Well, it, was, it wasn't anymore because of the of the commission. Yeah, but, you know, he was the boss. But I would say he was probably, yeah. Gambino was probably the closest thing to a boss of all bosses because yeah. he was so widely respected. Yeah. Um. But, yeah. No, that, this uh, chart is pretty extensive, guys. We'll put that in the description for y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Carlo had shown his gratitude. But he... Wait, did it show that he had been a capo before? Or no, Paul Castello. Yeah, Castellano. that's what I'm saying here. So, that okay, so he was a... Okay. He was a capo. He had chosen the wrong man. Did he skip underboss? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was confused by... Okay. Because you so said you're saying he skipped underboss, and he went right... Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Paul, 13 years younger than his cousin Carlo, was born in Brooklyn in 1915. His father, a butcher, ran numbers for mob control bookies. Paul dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He learned to be a meat cutter and began helping his father in the numbers racket. Paul was attracted to a life in the mafia, not out of any personal taste for violence, but out of greed. There was no real reason why he had to have a life of crime. He grew up in a middle class, two laboring class Italian neighborhood uh, where there was not a great deal of crime. That was partly what his relative did, and, uh, and it was a chance to make more money. In 1934, at the age of 19, Paul and two of his buddies botched an armed robbery in Brooklyn. Paul's cohorts got away, but he was arrested. The police questioned him for hours, yet Paul wouldn't rat on his partners in crime. He served three months in jail. When he got out, the story made the rounds about how Paul had kept his mouth shut and he became a hero among the thugs in his neighborhood. He was noticed. Police were like, hey, what kind of criminal activity are you doing? Forget about it. Next, you know, three months in jail. <laughs> By made men in the mob. With his connection to the Mangano family through his cousin Carlo, young Paul was initiated into La Cosa Nostra. When he was 22, Paul took after Carlo in another way. He used marriage to solidify his ties to organized crime. He married a distant cousin of his who just happened to be Carlo's sister-in-law. Her name, Nina Mano. 
she was the typical Italian lady. You walked into her house, she had a house dress on. She was talking about what she was going to make that night for dinner. Very simple lady. Paul and Nina had four children, three sons and a daughter. While Paul had joined the mafia, he didn't give up his legitimate career. In fact, by the early 50s, he owned a lucrative wholesale meat company. By all outward appearances, he was an upstanding businessman, dressing well and driving a sleek Buick convertible. But out of the office, Paul stayed close to his cousin Carlo and earned his trust. During the long reign of his cousin Carlo, Paul became a captain in the family. He was a key player in the boss's plan to diversify the mafia and develop the so-called white rackets. Construction bid rigging, union infiltration, and political corruption. These crimes guys are like the bread and butter of the mafia, especially infiltrating uh, labor organizations and getting uh, construction contracts. Like New York City guys is arguably built by the mob. Like a significant amount of New York City projects had mafia influence in them. And of course, you know, that didn't go over with the meat and potatoes thieves, you know, down at the bottom because they didn't know how to do that. So by 1976, when Carlo died and Big Paulie was suddenly named boss, he was seen as someone who rose to the top, not because he had paid his dues on the street, but because of his relationship to Carlo. He was the mob's version of little Lord Fauntleroy. I mean, you know, he came all dressed up neat and clean. He didn't have to get his hands dirty or bloody. And this empire was then given to him, given unto him as this great gift where guys who had been in the trenches, robbing and stealing and killing and hijacking and everything, you know, for years said, hey, what about me? Among the 800 or so gangsters who now made up the Gambino crime family, the more popular candidate to take over after Carlo was his second in command or underboss, Neil Della Croce. Bam. And he did, Castellano didn't have to, you know, go through this part to become the boss, which is obviously going to cause a lot of resentment. Della Croce operated out of the Ravenite Social Club in Little Italy and ran the blue collar faction of the family. Crimes like it. He was super respected too, guys, which is another reason why people didn't like the fact that Castellano took over versus this guy. Extortion, gambling, loan sharking, and whenever necessary, murder. Delacroix, one of the scariest individuals I've ever met in my life. Delacroix's eyes were like, uh, like he didn't have any eyes. You see that children of the damned? Like his eyes were so blue that they weren't even there. It was like looking right through them. Della Croce was the epitome of the mafia's old school. He was a soldier who believed in the tradition of unquestioning loyalty. When he was passed over for the top job, he accepted his fate quietly, even if he was bitterly disappointed. Some of Della Croce's thugs, including the ambitious John Gotti, did not accept the decision so lightly. Gotti was an upstart. Gotti was like, what do you mean, so it shall be? You know, what about you? You were number two. You were in line. But the new boss was no fool. He knew the blue-collar guys resented him. So he made peace with Della Croce and his gang by letting them control and profit from the street rackets they were running. Big Paulie looked down his nose at such activities and at men like John Gotti in their polyester suits. He preferred to dress like a banker and read the Wall Street Journal. 
he thought of the Gambino crime family as a corporate entity with various investments. And he had numerous legitimate businesses that, that he could front that were his cover, that were his way to respect in private industry as well as in organized crime. I think that the fact that he went to so much trouble to show that he was a legitimate businessman and not a gangster, that he transmitted such an air that he was, you know, not to be feared, that he was to be dealt with, negotiated with, um, lost him a lot of respect in the family. If Paul resembled Carlo in wanting to modernize the mafia, he differed from him in essential ways. While the old boss had lived in a modest house in Brooklyn, Paul built himself a mansion on Staten Island. A mansion worth three and a half million dollars. He called it his White House. The mansion was designed partly in imitation of the president's White House in Washington to give you an idea of the size of the ego that Paul Castellano had. And there it sits on the top of Todd Hill, totally isolated from the life of the average uh, mobster in the family, the copy who hung out at these clubs. The new boss did not seem to appreciate the need to mix with the troops the way his predecessor had. Carlo Gambino was a standoff. He was approachable and he would listen. If he could do something for you, to, then he would do it. Castellano was a lot more arrogant. Castellano preferred to spend his time dining with Fortune 500 executives at Manhattan steakhouses like Sparks, where the staff catered to his every desire. He used to go into Sparks and tell them what cut of meat he wanted them to cut because he was a, because of his butcher background. People would be falling falling all over themselves to wait on him. He may get eight waiters at his table. He was spoiled. Back at his White House, Paul was leading a life of deception. Though his marriage to Carlo Gambino's sister-in-law had served him well politically in the Mafia, it was an unhappy one. Paul suffered from diabetes, and it was said that one of the side effects was sexual impotence. Mrs. Nina and Mr. Paul were all the time sleeping in their separate rooms. Sometimes they used to speak. And uh, guys, <clears throat> excuse me. Spark Steakhouse is still open to this day, guys. If you look here, located at um, 210 oh, East 46th Street uh, out there in New York City. Let's see here and click what it looks like nowadays. This seems to be it right here. This was back when? This is back in the, I think, eight, uh, 70s now at this point. Okay. Well, Nice. And, you know, they have a good times together watching TV, playing cards, and sometimes they, they don't speak at all by a week or two weeks. Feeling lonely and isolated, Paul turned to his young Colombian maid for solace. He gave her these toy clowns, telling Gloria it was her duty to make him smile. I asked him, why you want that I smile for you? Why do you want I be like a clown at the day? Then he said, because I am very lonely. Because I only have money in my pocket. And because I don't have love. To a soldiers on the street who heard rumors about the affair, it was Paul who was acting like a clown. In order to consummate his relationship with Gloria properly, Paul got a penile implant. What? His wife left him. Crazy, what? right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> 
it was frown. That's what happens when you're out of shape, guys. Get in the goddamn gym, man. By everybody, <laughs> all his copy knew he was making an ass out of himself. He lost a great deal of respect in his own family, in the mafia family. As the Gambino family members lost more and more respect for the boss, they began to fear him less and then to hate him. One man in particular carried that hate around like a badge of honor, John Gotti. In the early 1980s, Gambino crime boss Paul Castellano lived a double life, balancing his status as a prosperous and legitimate businessman against his role as New York's most powerful mafia godfather. At a secluded White House on Staten Island, Paul surrounded himself with his trusted capos. Yet, with all his power and prestige, Paul admitted to his maid and lover, Gloria Olarte, the loneliness and fear that came with running a crime family. And one day he said to me, I, I want to be happy, but why you made me happy? Because people like me die in the street. Paul and Glory would often cook Italian food together. Then Paul, who had a ravenous appetite, would sit down to eat. He normally spent four or five hours and eat anything, the, the meat, the spaghetti, the, the, the vegetable, the coffee, the cake, the cookies, uh, you know, he never stopped to eat. Paul could also be gluttonous as a crime boss. He began demanding a bigger piece of the action from each of his two dozen crews. The typical 10% of a crew's earnings wasn't enough for Paul. He wanted 15%. If there's a five... He's acting like one of them boys. $100,000 score, and he only gets $50,000, he goes crazy. How come I'm only getting 10%? He'd fly off the handle about uh, who's running this. He didn't do anything, but he's the boss, so he should get more. And he certainly wasn't shy about voicing his dissatisfaction if his Christmas present wasn't big enough, if the envelope wasn't thick enough, if uh, a certain crew didn't come up. And greed always gets you jammed up, guys, when it comes to mafia business. Remember, Maranzano was the same thing. Wanted to be the boss of all bosses and have all this power. Ended up backfiring. Are you guys going to see what happens to Castellano in the same situation? With enough money at the end of a week because they didn't make that much, he didn't expect that to cut into his end. Paul's excessive greed, even by mob standards, was not the only character flaw alienating him from his own crime family. He persisted in snubbing the blue-collar faction of the family, headed by his underboss, Neil De La Croce. The crews complained to each other, but that was about all they could do. It was no use telling their boss, Neil De La Croce, who oversaw many of the crews and was considered a hoodlum's hoodlum. De La Croce just wanted to keep the peace and keep the boss happy. And keep the money flowing. If uh, $200,000 came in from a construction project, he would go up to the White House and give $100,000 to Big Paul because he believed that the boss is the boss is the boss. Big Paul certainly shared that view of himself. He demanded respect and was not above using his powers of intimidation to make that point, even to total strangers. He drove his wife to a supermarket one day and he said some young thug kind of kids cut him off and uh, screamed at him out the car and gave him gestures, the profane gestures with the hands and all. And he quietly took down the plate and then sent uh, 
some young men in his organization over to get these kids. And they brought them to the house. And he said, you know who I am now? So they said, yes. And they were trembling and they were frightened. He said, nobody's going to hurt you. I just want you to know that if you see an old man driving in a car, you shouldn't think that it's okay to make profane gestures. You better never do it again. And they were frightened to death and he let them out of the house. But that was Paul Castellano. Some of the others might have given them a beating or physically abused them or done worse. But uh, he was trying to give them a lesson. And it was an interesting lesson, I thought. But while the boss was teaching lessons in respect to young punks, the ever-growing disrespect for Castellano within the crime family was becoming poisonous. In the roaring 80s, Manhattan was in a furious building boom, and Big Paul was getting a huge cut from it all as contractors paid a mom tax to get their concrete delivered. It made the Gambinos rich. It also helped make construction costs in New York the highest in the nation. Big Paul wanted to make sure no one in the family disrupted the safe money-making machine. One crew Paul kept his eye on was John Gotti's at the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club in Queens. All right, so now we're going to be introduced to the OG himself, John Gotti. Gotti, who was now a capo, was letting it be known he wanted a bigger piece of the action in the cargo hijacking racket at JFK. And there were rumors. And remember, guys, as a capo, that means he's a captain on the street. So he's basically uh, like a third line guy. So you got boss, consigliere, underboss, and then capos. So he's pretty much third in line at this point, if you're going to roughly speak that way. Um, and again, watch the first episode, guys, where we show that hierarchy and break this all down so you kind of can keep tracking. Rumors Gotti's crew was involved in drug trafficking, a crime the boss told his men never to get into. And guys, remember, I know a bunch of you guys are going to say, that's a lie. I know the mafia sells drugs. This is, what are you talking, like, why would they not, like, care? Guys, back then, you could get killed for selling drugs because when you sell drugs, it brings with it a lot of snitches. It brings in other criminal organizations. It pretty much locks you into conspiracy automatically. And since at the time, drugs were getting football-type numbers, the mafia didn't want anyone involved because if one guy gets pinched for that, it could it could basically um, cause problems for all the other ways they were making money. So they looked at it as a risk that wasn't necessary. If you're making 200k, 300k a week with your construction scamming, why you know, and then more with the garment district and all the other ways they were making money, why the hell would you sit there and risk it all selling a product that carries 10, 20, 30 year sentences? You know. So that's why drug trafficking was so frowned upon. Did guys do it? Yes. Especially Cavalier bought people like John Gotti. They just did it under the table, kind of on the side, and didn't tell anybody about it. But if people knew, pretty much it would get you whacked. The kind of unsophisticated crews like John Gotti's crew were looked on as, you know, possible career threateners, you know, because these are the guys, they're going to get us in the papers. They're going to get locked up. They're, you know, involved in drugs. This is bad news for us. You know, we've got big things cooking here. Gotti would complain about Big Paul's uh, attitude toward him, saying, that guy, Big Paul, he's a stuffed shirt. He thinks he's a big boss, and all he is is a pain in the neck. Paul knew Gotti was unhappy, but he didn't seem to care. The boss was thinking about splitting the Bergen crew up anyway. They just weren't fitting in with the new business plan, and the manpower could be used elsewhere. 
it would be a fatal mistake and would cost Castellano his life. Just as Carlo Gambino had come to power 30 years earlier in a violent coup, John Gotti and other members of the Gambino family would soon begin plotting the same kind of bloody takeover. While Gambino crime boss Paul Castellano played the part of the well-dressed New York businessman, he was no stranger to violence, mafia style. Paul knew when it was time to kill, but he preferred deal-making to murder. Nothing showed that side of Paul's character better than the way he dealt with a gang of Irish thugs known as the Westies. The Westies operated out of Manhattan's west side neighborhood known as Hell's Kitchen, where they were into labor racketeering, extortion, drugs, and murder for hire. The Westies wanted to eliminate the competition on their turf. They began roughing up, robbing, kidnapping, and killing Mafia associates, including allies of the Gambino family. Big Paulie, in a move that reflected his style of Mafia deal-making, called a meeting at his favorite restaurant in Brooklyn, Tommaso's. He invited the leaders of the Westies, Jimmy Coonan and Mickey Featherstone. Castellano did not arrange to have the two Irish gangsters killed, as some other mob bosses might have done. Instead, he made them an offer they could not refuse. In exchange for 10% of their earnings on the street, Paul gave the Westies permission to use his name, and the name of the Gambino crime family on the west side of Manhattan. Paul's only caveat was that if the Westies wanted anyone killed, permission had to come first from the Gambinos. The Westies took the deal. Then, in the fall of 78, New York police detectives were... Businessman first, gangster second. Smart move, man. Some people might look at it as weak, but if you look at it objectively speaking, it's protecting the brand. ...stymied in their investigations of several West Side homicides. Witnesses wouldn't talk because they had heard Paul Castellano's name in connection with the crimes. The Westies were milking the privilege to use Paul's name for all it was worth. That's when the police decided to go straight to Paul. Paul agreed to meet with the police, but on his own turf, in Tommaso's restaurant. Paul Castellano walks through the door with his entourage, with about six or seven what we call jabeeps, with the mafia uniform, the uh, the gold chains, the pointed shoes, the camel hair coats, you know, the hair, the whole bit. Paul and the police were taken to the rear dining room, and the people eating there were moved so Paul and his interrogators could be alone. Discussing the problem. Problem being, I want you to cut the cord with the Irish kids on the west side because uh, and they're denigrating you, and you know, I'm trying to use a little psychology with them. And he listens, and he, and he admits to me that he knows them, and he tells me, yes, they're nice little Irish kids, you know. So we have our conversation. At the end of the conversation, he says, by the way, he says, I just built a new home in Staten Island. I'd like you and your wife to come as my guests for the housewarming. And here's Tommaso's right here, guys. It's still open to this day. So I guess these mob guys really had a good taste of food because all these restaurants they ate back in you know the day are all still open. So I guess mafia guys have good taste in food. I said, are you crazy? 
Paul had no interest in cooperating with the police, but to protect himself, he told the Westies to stop using his name specifically. Too much money was coming out of Hell's Kitchen to stop anything just because the cops asked for Paul's help. So the murder and mayhem continued, and Castellano kept collecting his tithe. But the most violent gang connected to Paul was a crew within the Gambino family run by a serial killer named Roy DeMeo. DeMeo and his gang specialized in loan sharking, narcotics, and their peculiar talent, murder. And guys, loan sharking is lending money at an extremely high interest I was rate ask you that. that people typically can't pay back. So, um, and then if they don't pay it back, they basically beat them up or take over their business or whatever. It allows them to get their tentacles in to desperate people. Higher. What they would do is lure you into a spot. Um, you'd be shot in the head with a silencer or a quick pistol. Um, they would wrap a towel around your head real quick so the blood wouldn't go all over the place. And then they would hang you upside down and bleed you. And you can see a scene like this, guys, in the movie Goodfellas, where they shoot John Pesci in the back of the head after he thinks he's going to be made. And then dismember oh, the body, spoiler, man. box it, bag it, and the next morning you run the 30 tons of garbage in the fountain there when you dump. And Don't worry, that doesn't give anything away. They uh, probably did in excess of... Or at least not too much. 250 <laughs> murders. Paul happily collected his due from there. And you just... Forget about it! Oh my God. <laughs> and used the DeMeo crew to carry out hits. One of the hits Paul ordered was on his own son-in-law and Gambino soldier, Frank Amato. <laughs> Amato was married to Paul's daughter, Connie. He got crazy by Miss Connie. He loved her. Miss Connie is the only daughter he had. Every time he talked about Miss Connie, his eyes lit up. In 1980, Paul heard rumors that his son-in-law was fooling around with other women and beating up Connie who was pregnant at the time. Oh my God. When Connie suffered a miscarriage, Paul blamed Frank and ordered DeMeo to kill him. On September 20th, 1980, Frank Amato disappeared. His body was never found and the crime was never solved. Over the next two years, Paul let DeMeo and his crew do as they pleased. As long as he got his cut on time, Paul was happy. But in 1982, Paul got word the feds were investigating DeMeo's activities, specifically drug dealing and dozens of murders. Paul summoned DeMeo to a strategy session to deal with the investigation. DeMeo didn't show up, so Paul had him killed. DeMeo's body was found in the trunk of his own car on January 10th, 1983. So behind the facade of the well-dressed Manhattan businessman was a ruthless mob boss. And while Castellano's excessive greed, as well as his affair with his maid, were losing him respect within the Gambino family, no one doubted his willingness to use violence. In fact, as tensions within the family grew worse, those who knew they had alienated the boss, including John Gotti, realized that the best way to save their own lives was to strike first. The downfall of Gambino boss Paul Castellano can be traced to an ambitious underling and an unwitting lover. In March 1983, the FBI was eager to plant bugs inside Paul's Staten Island mansion. 
but the agents needed to know exactly where in the house Paul sat and held court. They have a bug in the, the kitchen, and they talk in the kitchen most of the time, and then all of a sudden when they have something really critical to say, like they're going to kill somebody, and they go on the porch, you're screwed. That's where the maid came in. Paul's maiden lover, Gloria Olarte, was no stranger to the FBI. Agents would stop her while she was running errands and offer to buy her coffee just to see if they could get any information out of her. Gloria had told Paul about it, and he'd given her only one piece of advice. Don't worry. Be careful. If he asks you something, answer whatever you have to answer. Don't lie. Please don't lie. One day, Gloria casually mentioned to an agent that Mr. Paul, as she called him, sat at the kitchen table where he talked on the phone and held his meetings. Gloria had no idea she had just told them where to plant the bug. But Paul... You stupid! Paul didn't make things easy for the FBI. He protected his home with a state-of-the-art security system, a high wrought iron fence, and a Rottweiler named Duke, who roamed the three-and-a-half-acre estate. So the FBI sent an agent to Paul. And guys, when I cover <clears throat> how the FBI dismantled La Cosa Nostra, we're going to go into more detail about how they put this specific bug in Castello's house. Paul's house posing as a repairman. At the time, Paul, Gloria, and Paul's driver, Tommy Bellotti, were all in the house. In fact, Bellotti hovered over the agent, watching every move. Here you got the agent who's got this known killer is watching over him. So right while he was standing there, watching him, guarding him, standing guard, uh, the, the agent installed the microphone and uh, thinking he was fixing what he was supposed to be fixing. With the bug planted, the FBI began the task of monitoring Paul's day-to-day -day life. Over the next four and a half months, the FBI recorded over 600 hours of conversations. I think 70% None of those tapes were recipes Man, and conversations. Somebody like, should have made a cookbook out of it. Go ahead. How, how are the microphones and bugs and shit they will put in this time? Because, you know. They they were good, man. I mean, um, you know, they, they even back then they had fairly sophisticated equipment. So, I mean, the government's been wiretapping people for since even like the early 1900s. It's something that kind of came out even like. Right. In like the 1920s, it was already like technology that they were doing it. So, yeah. Wow. So crazy stuff. Nowadays, you could buy a pen on Amazon that records. <laughs> you click it. So <laughs> yeah, of goes course. how far we come. I don't know, uh, but uh, we we were facing some uh, not very nice conversations in the sense that they were uh, they were clearly talking about business and how they were going to slice up business. With the audio tapes rolling, Paul outlined mafia business badmouth other family bosses and made loving asides to his maid. He was digging a hole for himself oh, and the entire New York Mafia. Then a family crisis centered on the John Gotti crowd. On August 23, 1983, eight Gambino soldiers, including Gotti's friend Angelo Ruggiero and Gotti's younger brother Gene, were arrested for smuggling heroin. Most of the evidence came from the FBI's tap on the Long Island home of Angelo Ruggiero, nicknamed Quack Quack, because he talked so much. <laughs> Angelo Man. was one of the biggest talkers gotcha, ever wanted to find. Angelo would go up to visit Paul Castellano on Sunday. He's one of those forget about it type guys. <laughs> uh, with Neil Delacroach and John Gotti. 
and Castellano would talk about a lot of things. So Angelo would come back. All right, guys, I got a treat for you here. This is from the Netflix series um, Fear City when they um, planted the bug in Costello's house. Let's see. Series of bugs to capture conversations between key figures in the mafia. We got a chance to see just how complex the operations were that went into setting them up, such as the phone plant. The complaint goes in because he has absolute legitimate trouble on his phone. We would ask the phone company to not dispatch and I would show up. And this guy that's talking in interview, guys, is the FBI um, tech guy. I learned it's very easy to introduce interference in cable systems. Good morning. I'm the cable man now. We pulled the veil. It's really crazy that they had technology like this back then. So it's even scarier yeah. what we probably have nowadays. Yeah. The view of the car. The real high tech we shot, shit we got, guys, I guarantee is probably classified, which back then this was also probably considered classified. Oh, wow. We confirmed the bug was working and off we went and we were running again. With things getting so personal, it was <laughs> crazy stuff, guys, huh? Back to the main documentary. And he would start to talk about what happened up there at these meetings. We couldn't believe it. He would talk about everything. He's the kind of guy, if he hears something, he, you have, he has to let you know that he is in on what's going on. So he'd come and he would brag about it. And that's, that's, that's perfect for what we want. The FBI knew the tapes could easily prove that Paul Castellano ran the Gambino crime family. Paul was still in the dark about this, but was furious with Gotti and his crew for breaking the family rule against dealing drugs. Oh, I don't think there's any question that Paul Castellano uh, uh, thought about killing uh, John Gotti and uh, Angelo Ruggiero. Uh, it's unclear if he would have. Paul Castellano uh, was not as trigger happy as John Gotti was. Maybe not for any benevolent reason, but because uh, murder does have a way of bringing heat from law enforcement officials. Paul was desperate to learn if he had been implicated on the Ruggiero tapes. So he demanded that the crew leader, Neil De La Croce, bring a copy of the wiretap evidence to him at his White House. A copy that had now been provided to the Gambino men waiting trial. The boss wanted to hear... Remember guys, the discovery process, when you get charged with a crime, the government must turn over what they have on you. So that's how the crooks typically find out that they're wiretapped and then they're able to trace it back and figure out who the snitch was. So <clears throat> discovery is a very powerful process for crooks to be able to figure out who was responsible for putting them in jail. The tapes for himself. Even now, the feds were still listening in, this time on a bug they had planted in the bedroom of Neil De La Croce. And remember guys, they can't place a bug in a sensitive area like that unless they have an informant telling them that that's where they talk about criminal activities. So. If you're getting your phone tapped or your house tapped or whatever in the United States, that pretty much means guaranteed there was an informant or someone involved that was there at that location that was able to identify as a means to commit criminal activity, right? So for example, 
let's say you talk to an informant about selling drugs, blah, blah, blah. Now your phone has been used in the commission of a crime. So the feds can talk to that informant. What'd y'all talk about? We talk about this. Here's the recording. Boom. Now they could write a wiretap for that phone, an affidavit, and listen to it. They want to bug your house. They can basically get an informant or someone to say, yo, this is where they had their meetings and talk about criminal activity. You want the bugs here? Bam. That's the probable cause they need. They go in there and um, put the bugs in. So anytime you see a wiretap, guys, where the feds are able to actively listen, remember, Title Three means listening to it as it's happening, capturing it live. That means that an informant was involved 99% of the time because there's no way that you can develop probable cause to listen to people and through such sensitive means unless you have someone that is close to them to be able to get those sensitive conversations. Does that make sense? Like the goddamn video. You ain't going to get sauce like that anywhere else because I'm the only person on fucking YouTube that has written Title Three affidavits, and you could take that to the bank, man. No other content creator has written affidavit for Title Threes. By this point, Neil was dying of brain cancer. And here was John Gotti and Angelo standing there at Neil's deathbed while the tapes were turning and the FBI was listening in. I'm going to tell you something. If you two never bother with me again, again the rest of my life, I ain't giving them tapes. I can't. I can't. There's good friends of mine on the fucking tapes. Well, he's divorced, you have to do what he tells you. See, that's why I said to you before, you, you don't understand what the matter is. It's for me that the boss is your boss. You understand? But Ruggiero wouldn't give the tapes up, fearing that would mean death for him and the other soldiers who had been dealing drugs. Yeah, he was too busy saying, Forget about it! <laughs> anytime he was selling dope and talking with all the other guys that were doing it. Della Croce didn't want to go to war over the tapes and stalled for time. The heads of the other mafia families in New York watched to see how Paul would discipline his own men. But before he could make a decision, Paul was arrested on March 30th, 1984, and charged with 51 counts of racketeering for sanctioning the killing of 25 people, stealing cars, and selling drugs. At the courthouse, Paul was out of his element. If you look at the man, the charges were somewhat out And I remember being in the hallway of the courthouse. I walked right up to him. He was a big guy. He must have been 6'5 or something. And I stuck out my hand and said, How do you do, Mr. Castellano? John Miller. And I remember he put out his hand, and I grabbed this big hand, and I remember it was uh, very sweaty, clammy. It was, like he was a, it was like he was a nervous man, and you thought, well, gee, this guy runs the Gambino crime family. You know, if he presses a button, people get killed. You know, here he was, nervous. Paul was released on $2 million bond. He put on a brave face and tried to get back to business. Then the dam broke. That's the equivalent to about $4 million today, guys. Maybe even a little bit more. On February 25th, 1985, Paul was arrested along with the bosses of New York's other crime families in what became known as the commission case. Because remember, guys, by now, RICO is in effect. So they're finally able to use it. And Rudy Giuliani, who I remember was the mayor uh, when, right around the time I was in New York, he was a prosecutor back then, an AUSA, a federal prosecutor. And he was responsible. That's actually one of the way, reasons he rose up to fame so quick. He was the guy that prosecuted the five, uh, the five families of New York. The bosses, who all sat on the mob's board of directors or commission, were charged with racketeering in connection with shaking down New York building contractors and demanding a 2% tax on big cement jobs. 
Much of the evidence came from the FBI bug in Paul's kitchen. He was in the backseat of the car being brought in for processing. And uh, the newscast came, came over to a car radio that the FBI had just arrested the commission. And a lot of the information was based on the microphonic surveillance, a bug placed in Paul Castellano's house. He said, did you guys really bug my house? And he was muttering something to himself about it. You know, he knew at that point that he was in big trouble. There were rumors within the crime family that Big Paulie might cooperate with the government and become a rat. The kind of rumors that make mobsters reach for their guns. John Gotti wanted to kill Paul because he said the Gambino family would be better off without him. But Neil Della Croce, the ever loyal underboss, wouldn't hear of it. Then on December 2nd, 1985, Neil Della Croce died from brain cancer. John Gotti was now in charge of the blue collar wing. In the days following Neil's death, Paul's own actions sealed his doom. First, he announced to the family that he was breaking up Gotti's crew and reassigning them. Punishment because he had a big problem with Gotti for the heroin dealing. Then, knowing the FBI was watching his every step, he skipped the. If the FBI wasn't watching Gotti, he would have killed them guys. But obviously, it was a hot time, so he didn't want to be involved in any other murders to to add to his 25 that they already got him on. Croce's wake, a sign of disrespect in La Cosa Nostra. Paul Castellano was a very shrewd and. I can and, imagine you know, um, maneuvering way before the the they got them. They they thought they were invincible. Yep. Right. Absolutely, they thought they were invincible back then. Until they got caught. <laughs> they always do, man, man. This is crazy. Kind of fellow, and he said that would be bad for business for me to show up there. So forget about Neil. Forget about the way. We'll send a card. And many. In the Gambino family, most particularly John Gotti, would have said, hey, your own underboss and your lifelong friend dies. You throw all that out the window. You be a man. You go to the wake. You pay your respects. That was the last straw for John Gotti. And with Della Croce dead, there was no one to stop him from putting his coup into action. First, Gotti won over a longtime supporter of Castellano named Frank DeChico. DeChico agreed to help Gotti in exchange for being named underboss when Gotti took over. DeChico went to work on the boss. Now you can see, right, Castellano, John Gotti's smart, man. He sees Castellano's really feeling it. He's being charged right now. He's in the dumps. He can't really enforce anything. He's more concerned with not going to prison. So this creates what? A ripe opportunity for John Gotti to come in and take over. <laughs> and you can see him plotting and setting up all the pieces to take over the family. He told Paul that the men were upset that he had snubbed the Croce's wake. So DeChico offered to arrange a dinner at Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan with Neil's son, Armand. DeChico told Paul this would be his chance to pay his respects. The dinner was set for December 16th. After doing a little Christmas shopping and dropping off some gifts for the secretaries in his lawyer's office, Paul headed for Sparks around 5 p.m., escorted by his driver, Tommy Bellotti. I think he was too trustworthy. That jaunt up to uh, Sparks that evening. I think probably uh, a street boss would have suspected something was going to happen because they were having problems. When Paul and Tommy Bellotti pulled up to the curb outside Sparks Steakhouse, four men rushed the car and shot Paul and Tommy several times each in the head. 
And demonetization. <laughs> oh, Lord. No. That's all good. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll beat it. <laughs> it was the ultimate disrespect. If you're going to kill a guy of Paul Castellano's stature and you do it like that, you're telling him and everybody even remotely connected with him that, you know, this is this is a slap. It's not just a murder. It's a slap at everything the guy stood for and everybody was connected with him. Within minutes of the hit, the cops had a list of likely suspects. At the top of that list was a 45-year-old gangster who wanted to bring back the good old days of La Cosa Nostra, John Gotti. Christmas, 1985, just nine days after the hit on boss Paul Castellano. Among the questions swirling within the ranks of the New York underworld and the FBI, who was the new boss of the Gambino crime family? The answer was soon apparent. In a stakeout across from the Ravenite Social Club on Little Italy's Mulberry Street, FBI agents watched as throngs of New York's top mafiosi lined up to kiss the cheek of the new man in charge, John Gotti. All the captains got together. It was to vote John and his boss. And he was, you know, unanimously voted in. The word is already out there. <laughs> this is the guy who killed the last guy. And I think there was a real hunger for a guy like him in the family at that point. At the age of 45, John Gotti had achieved his life's dream. The brown Lincoln was traded for a black Mercedes that cost 70-something thousand dollars. John Gotti was wearing $2,000 Brioni suits. He was wearing diamond pinky rings, and there were guys driving him and guys opening his doors for him and closing his doors for him. Now he was the boss. John Joseph Gotti Jr., born October 27th, 1940. All right, guys, so I'm going to uh, pretty much end it here because I'm going to do an episode. Actually, you know what? Hmm. I was going to do an entire episode on John Gotti, but we could just cover it here. You know what? Now we'll go. We'll, we'll go. We'll go with it and continue on. <laughs> Um, because I was thinking about another documentary that I know in the back of my mind that's pretty good with John Gotti, but this one is okay. It's this one is good too. This one is actually good too. I'll just fill in the blanks. So let's get back to it. He grew up in the South Bronx, one of thirteen. Don't worry, guys. I ain't going nowhere, man. <laughs> I'm not fucking leaving. Mary's <laughs> literally. The show goes on. <laughs> this is my home. They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball. To take me out of here! Oh my god, no! You're becoming Chris now, man! Join it! Join it! What are you doing? All right. The show goes on, people! The show goes on! Let's keep going! This is Brooklyn! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball! To take me out of here! Oh 6.51 God. in the morning, let's keep fucking going! ...children, his parents barely scraping by. On the streets of the South Bronx, everybody knew about the mob. The well-dressed men flashing wads of bills and driving expensive cars. Young Gotti gazed <laughs> at them with the same eyes as Carlo and Paul had done when they were boys. John Gotti was drawn to the mob uh, for the same reasons that everybody else is. Uh, the chance to make uh, a quick, easy dollar, 
the influence, uh, the power, the clout, uh, well, you know, driving the big ass Cadillacs that uh, all the other guys did around the uh, around that time. Growing up on the streets, John ran with the gangs, staking out turf in the neighborhood. A natural thug, John was soon running his own gang. John Gotti was a tough guy. Uh, he was good with his fists. Uh, he was also uh, a charismatic born leader type. Uh, even as a youngster, uh, uh, kids uh, followed him uh, and he could get people to do uh, what he wanted. He knew the buttons to push. John and his friends hung around a mafia social club in Brooklyn run by Carmine Fatigo, a capo first for Albert Anastasia and later for Carlo Gambino. From Carmine, John learned the coarse language of the mob. The guy had the vocabulary of a, uh, a sailor. No imagination at all. Every other word was F or MF or CS. I mean, it was incredible. It's a moron. John set out to impress the wise guys by stealing. Once, when roaming the streets of Brooklyn, 14-year-old Gotti and his buddies tried stealing a cement mixer. When the mixer tipped over, it fell on John's left foot, crushing it. After that, he walked with a bounce. It was one of those in interesting characteristics of John Gotti that was not a put-on, not an act. Uh, he uh, liked to carry himself with flair and with dignity, uh, but that uh, little special bounce that he had in his uh, walk had to do with uh, the incident back when he was a 14 or 15-year-old. In 1956, John dropped out of Franklin K. Lane High School, taking with him a sizable chunk of his classmates' lunch money, which he had earned as a class bookie. John got a job as a coat presser and began building upon his criminal resume. At 17, arrested for stealing copper from a construction firm, he pleaded guilty and got probation. At 20, a 60-day suspended sentence for disorderly conduct. In 1960, he met and fell in love with the daughter of a Jewish sanitation worker, Victoria DiGiorgio. Vicky and John got engaged. They were both short-tempered and called it off several times before getting married in March 1962. The couple had five children and eventually settled into the Howard Beach section of Queens. Shortly after the wedding, John took a job as a trucker's assistant but his paycheck didn't cover his frequent nights on the town gambling. Gotti resorted to stealing cars to make ends meet, but the law caught up with him in 1965, and this time, Gotti was sent to prison. With John behind bars and no money coming in, Vicki Gotti went on welfare. Many people would look at that as an act of weakness while she went on welfare. Mamma mia! Many people would look at that as an act of, uh, an act of a strong woman sending a, a signal, hey, if you guys won't take care of me, you know, I'll take care of it. And, you know, not in a way that uh, that will make anybody look very good here. When well, he was released correct, from prison Uncle in Sam 1966, Gotti desperately needed money to support his family. So he turned to a sure thing, hijacking trucks. His hunting ground, JFK Airport, Queens. But Gotti was not too successful in eluding. And this is one of the most hot box, way, box ways the mafia was making money, which is why so many people didn't like John Gotti. He did high-risk, high-reward type crimes. You know, jacking cargo, freaking, you know, selling drugs, all this other stuff. Though it helped Gotti become notorious, it also hurt him within the confinements of the mafia because he drew so much attention to himself. Along with his brother Gene and his best friend Angelo Ruggiero, he was soon arrested. 
He was sentenced to nearly three years in the maximum security federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. John got out in 1972. He went back to Carmine Fatico's crew, now operating out of the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club in Ozone Park. It really shocked me how short Wise their guys at the club sentences are, you know? Yeah, yeah. This is before. Johnny Boy. Gotta presented himself like a man that's been around, you know. Gotta you don't want to mess around with, you know. But uh, he also was very gentle and good-natured. And he'd sit around playing cards. Gotti's passion for gambling qualified him to run Fatigo's gambling operations, which controlled a few small illegal casinos in Queens. If anyone failed to pay their debts to Fatigo, Johnny Boy roughed them up. Gotti quickly built a reputation as a tough guy and a valuable soldier. So valuable that John was appointed acting capo of the Bergen crew. Gotti was just 31 and not even a full-fledged made man in the mafia. It was John Gotti's goal to be boss of the crime family back when he was uh, running a teenage gang back in the 1950s. As acting capo, John reported directly to Gambino underboss Neil Della Croce. Della Croce took care of him. Della Croce's relationship with Gotti was like a father and son as opposed to a subordinate to a, uh, to a boss. Uh, Della Croce protected him. Gotti did Della Croce's bidding. 100% uh, loyal to Delacoste to the end. Gotti's rise to glory got a big boost in 1973 after an Irish thug kidnapped and then murdered the nephew of the aging boss, Carlo Gambino. Carlo Gambino had never received such a, uh, an instance of utter disrespect in his life. Kill the bastard. Gotti was chosen to rub out the culprit, James McBratney. When Gotti was arrested, he scored big points in the Gambino family by avoiding what would have been a highly publicized trial and accepting a plea bargain. After spending three years in prison, Gotti returned to a crime family straining to get along under the new leadership of Paul Castellano. In the summer of 1976, John Gotti was formally sworn into the mafia. While Gotti had now control over his own... And again, guys... First episode, we talk about how you get sworn in, opening the books, being a made guy, all the prerequisites it takes to be uh, a made guy, which I forgot to mention, by the way, guys, you must be Italian. Your father must be Italian for you to be a made man. Uh, you know, there were times where you had to be, you know, both parents had to be or whatever. But what I've seen the most is that as long as your father was Italian, you become you can become made. True. He soon began to lose control of himself. The first sign was his gambling habit. We have a bug in the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club in Ozone Park. And he's a degenerate gambler. Got it. He would bet on two cockroaches running up the wall. That's how bad he was. He's in the club all by himself <laughs> on the evening and he gets the result of the baseball games. He lost every one of them. He blew $20,000 plus the VIG. The VIG is the interest, right? He's all alone. What do you think his reaction was to losing $20,000? God is a blankety blank fag. That's it. We're rolling. <laughs> Boom, Bokad. Hey, John Gotti out here being a G. <laughs> John, DeMonco. John Gotti was living that rumble life, if you guys know what I'm saying, man. <laughs> he said that word. 
Gotti became notorious. My man said, fuck it, I'm on Rumble. Rumble.com. <laughs> His first temper tantrums. I walk up the street. Speaking of which, guys, Rumble.com slash Fresh Go subscribe. I stopped in at the club. And there was John. He was uh, sitting at the table. While we're talking, in walks a guy, one of his people, with his hands outstretched, and he has a silver leisure suit in his hands. And as he's walking toward the table, John says, what the is that? He says, John, that's the, the, the leisure suit you told me to get you, the gray one that you told me to get you. He says, is that gray? Are you at a kill you and this and that? Like nearly every other young wise guy, Gotti had a round of girlfriends who were easily impressed with his money. I know a woman who dated John, who um, John would take her out and he said to her, um, you know, can I, you, you need anything? Can I, you know, why don't you go shopping? She says, no, she says, come on, go shopping. He takes out a... My man out here is simping. <laughs> Gives her the whole bunch of money out of his pocket and she says, John... Hey, bitch, you want some money? Forget about it. That's all the money you have in your pocket. And he says, I got two pockets. There was a about it. in Gotti's family life. In March 1980, just a few blocks from Gotti's home in Queens, his 12-year-old son, Frankie, riding a minibike, darted out from behind a dumpster and into the path of a car driven by a neighbor, John Favara. The boy was killed. Oh the police ruled it an accident. One of the factors that uh, apparently or allegedly annoyed Victoria Gotti was that he never really came and apologized. But he had been warned by others not to apologize. So uh, I think uh, Favara was in the middle of a very untenable situation, unfortunately. And uh, the best uh, advice to him would have been to get out of town very quickly. Uh, he had been planning to uh, leave and had just made arrangements to buy a house, uh, but uh, he didn't uh, move uh, quick enough. Just two days before the neighbor was set to move, three men beat him and threw him into a van as he was leaving work. He was never seen again. At the time, John and Vicky Gotti were conveniently out of town. No one was ever charged. The John Gotti took over the Gambino family. Crazy shit, right? Five years after that incident, soon became a media superstar and made the mistake of believing his own press clippings. In January 1986, just a month after John Gotti became boss, he made it clear to his associates that he had big plans for the Gambino crime family. He did not know the FBI was listening to every boast. And for a while, it seemed that Gotti really was invincible. No matter what charge was thrown at him, it wouldn't stick. He became known as the Teflon Don. The first two trials he faced were for racketeering and assault. In the assault case, prosecutors said Gotti beat up this man named Romuald Pisiak, a refrigerator repairman, and robbed him of $300 following a traffic dispute. John was able to... Hey, asshole! The fridge is still warm. Forget about it. I'm gonna smack the shit out of you. <laughs> Control his emotions in the court. You just want to press that but button. At home, his wife Vicky was running out of patience, and she let John know it over the phone. 
just says, you haven't been home in three weeks. Uh, I'm leaving. I don't want any part of this life anymore. When are you coming home? He said, let me tell you something. I'm on trial for this one here. If I beat this, I go on trial for the one in Brooklyn. If I beat both of them, I'll be home in three days. If I lose, I'll be home in 35 years. Screw you when he hangs up the phone. Hey, that's what we talking about, baby. Let these bitches know what time it is, man. Booking stores why women deserve less. Holy, I guess John Gotti must have had a copy back then or something. Because <laughs> that's what we're talking about over here at Fresh and Fit, guys. Booking stores why women deserve less. So if she's nagging you when you're facing three Ricos, you let that bitch know what time it is, man. It hasn't been five minutes. You said the main boss <laughs> Winning the assault case was a cinch. As soon as the repairman began reading news reports that the man he was accusing was a new boss of the Gambino crime family, he forget about oh it. Oh my God! Developed a sudden no. case of amnesia and could no longer remember who beat him up. Oh case... man! So, sir, is it not true that John Gotti in the courtroom beat the crap out of you? Forget about it. Next thing you know, he gone. <laughs> I ain't saying shit. I'm not trying to die. This was dropped. Next came the racketeering case. The government brought in convicted killers and drug dealers who had bargained lighter sentences in exchange for ratting on Gotti. John's attorney, Bruce Cutler, ripped into the credibility of the witnesses. The jury found Gotti not guilty. As we're talking about. Yeah, Blondon. Paid witnesses, witnesses who've lied in the past, witnesses who've got new identities, witnesses who've sold drugs, witnesses who've killed people. The moment Gotti was a media superstar, he savored his celebrity. You know, I always feel good. The whole story of John Gotti took on a life of its own. And you know, I've often said that the media created the superstar John Gotti because Basically, we just chased him and chased him. And the more he smirked, the more we chased him. And he made one remark that really stuck out in my head. He said he didn't seek out the media. They sought him out. He was the kind of personality that the media was attracted to. He didn't go look saying, wow, I want to be on television. I want to do this. They wanted to meet him. Now that he was the boss, Gotti moved his place of business to the Ravenite Social Club in Manhattan's Little Italy. And he says, hey, I ain't going to hide from nobody. I ain't no laid down Sally like that old boss Castellano. I'm going to go to Manhattan. I ain't going to be hiding from nobody. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to do business. The rank and file Gambino soldiers saw Gotti as one of them, a hardworking soldier who had fought his way to the top, a welcome change for those who had felt slighted by Paul Castellano. He was great for morale. You know, he made wise guys feel like wise guys again. He brought back a lot of that spree decor that Castellano and even Gambino to some extent. Had... Yeah, a lot of his people supported him and respected him because he really did get it out the mud, unlike everybody else getting it through nepotism. Well, John Gotti pretty much got it through murder, but you know what I mean. Forget about it! Oh Seeped God. out of the family. <laughs> On the business side, it was a prosperous time for Gotti and the Gambino family. The rackets were earning the family half a billion dollars a year. Much of the success was due to Gotti's consigliere or senior. Half a billion a year. Wild stuff. Advisor, Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, a thick necked, gravel voiced contractor who watched over. Another very famous mobster. This guy has a YouTube channel as well as Mike Francis, guys. You should go check out his channel. The old family interests in construction. 
He's one of my best friends. We played paddle ball one time. He hit the ball. I thought the wall was going to break. He hit it a ton. Wow. The ball broke, as a matter of fact. But Sammy was very, very strong. That's why they call him Sammy the Ball. It's a little bit surprising that uh, John Gotti would have picked Sammy Gravano. Sammy was uh, someone who uh, did have a little bit on the ball, was young enough uh, to be a threat to, um, uh, to John Gotti. Uh, but I guess John Gotti uh, never thought that Sammy Gravano uh, would uh, take him down. Gotti treated Gravano as a brother, someone he could trust with his life. He always talked about hating rats. Sammy's uh, rhetoric always uh, downrated. Rat, rat, rat. On FBI tapes, Gotti let Gravano know just how much he cared for him. To the public, Gotti made himself the most visible mob boss since Scarface Al Capone. His perfectly coiffed hair, $2,000 suits, and frequent appearances at New York's hottest night spots painted a picture of a bygone mafia era. When John Gotti walked into a restaurant, it was an event. Um, ten people walked into that restaurant. Um, a cashmere coat over his shoulders, um, dressed impeccably. Everybody stopped and looked around. He began to believe that he was uh, all-powerful. You know, in one conversation, uh, he and Sammy Gravano were sitting at a table in a restaurant, and John turned to Sammy and he said, Hey, look at those people over there. They're smiling at me. They love me. And sure enough, Gravano looks over, and there are two... Uh, young, recently married people looking at John Gotti in awe. The guy gets up and says, uh, Hello, Mr. Gotti, I really wanted to meet you. I think you're great. Guys, he was really, this is an understatement. Back then, when I was living in New York, this dude was like an A-list celebrity, man. Crazy. Goes back and sits down, and John Gotti tells Sammy, See, what I, what I tell you? Everybody loves us. In January 1989, Gotti was indicted again, this time for ordering the shooting of a construction union agent, John O'Connor. Four years earlier, O'Connor had sent union thugs into this restaurant to destroy the work of non-union labor. Only the restaurant turned out to be owned by the Gambinos. O'Connor was shot four times in the buttocks. John O'Connor was shot because John Gotti ordered it teach him a lesson to prove its point prosecutors played surveillance tape. yeah it's a, a sucky way to get shot it's <laughs> gotti repeating o'connor's address over the phone and then a garbled sentence the prosecution said was bust him up the jury was left with reasonable doubt. How say you with respect to defendant John Gotti, guilty or not guilty? We find him not guilty. Hey. 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 Dom the oh, man out here making all types of juries. Forget about it. <laughs> oh, my God. No way. Shout out to the G, man. Another one. <laughs> Dom DeMarco. Being cases left and right, man. That's why I had that nickname, Teflon Don. Gotti was free again and held the fireworks display in Little Italy to celebrate. But the feds were still listening and waiting for the right moment to pounce. Remember, guys, it's the state that's trying to take him down, but the feds are watching. As the 1990s began, John Gotti seemed to be making good on his reputation as the Teflon Don. 
but he did not count on the betrayal of his closest ally, Sammy the Bull Gravano. On December 11th, 1990, Gotti, Sammy the Bull, and John's underboss, Frank Locascio, met for dinner at the Ravenite Social Club. FBI agents were waiting in a car across the street. They had enough taped evidence to bring Gotti and company to trial again. The three men were arrested just after 6.30 p.m. Gotti faced a slew of racketeering he's charges, smiling. including four murders. One of those... Yeah, because he thinks he's going to beat it again, but what he didn't what realize the it was hell? the best this time. Murders was the hit this guy on just Paul Gotti and Gravano both denied bail. While Sammy and John were still in prison um, together, uh, they were both ruminating on ways of getting out of jail. Sammy Gravano gave the uh, suggestion that perhaps they could break out by scaling down uh, bed sheets. And John Gotti thought he was crazy. John Gotti's suggestion. Yeah, that ain't happening. <laughs> was even a little bit more crazy, I think, than Sammy's. And that was to bribe a president. And his suggestion to Sammy Gravano was uh, somewhere down the line, five years from now, we put together a $5 million package. We can walk right out the front door. We could bribe a president. And Sammy looked. Yeah, it's not 1930 anymore, my friend. <laughs> You're in the prohibition area. That, that ain't going to work. Mamma mia! You could go ahead and take that idea. So it's either the shits or bribe the president. Yeah, <laughs> like at this point, you know. that. <laughs> yeah. The illusional time. Yeah, facts. Looked at John, and John looked at Sammy, and the way I get it was they both thought that each other was crazy. <laughs> this time, yeah. John could not count on his longtime lawyer, Bruce Cutler. The government said Cutler was too close to organized crime. On one tape, Gotti was heard complaining about Cutler's fees. Oh my God. This recording basically threw his lawyer under the bus. So now the police, mm -hmm. the feds were able to articulate that he's a criminal for charging him so goddamn much. Goddamn. Actually, pretty smart tactic, though. In jail, Sammy the Bull knew he could be implicated in as many as 19 mob hits. That's when Sammy decided to become what he had always said he hated a rat. He agreed to testify against the boss in exchange for a lighter sentence. Oh, was devastated. Shit. At the trial, his closest ally, Sammy the Bull, took the stand and told the world how John ran the Gambino family oh. and how he and Gotti had plotted the assassination of Castellano. He became a Pentito. Gravano to look over at Gotti, but when he saw the way Gotti was looking at him, it was the same kind of look on his face. It's really hard to describe, but if looks could kill, two people would have been dead in the courtroom that day. Mama mia! The jury took less than two days to find Gotti guilty on all counts. I was with John uh, when he was sentenced. He gets life without parole, and the judge imposes a $50 special assessment. And we're back in the holding cell afterwards, and you know John's taking off his tie, getting out of his suit. He says, boy, that $50 special assessment, they really know how to stick it to a guy, huh? And he laughs. Forget about it! Life without parole, <laughs> and he laughs. Gotti was sent off to the maximum security federal penitentiary at Marion, Illinois. Gravano, after a short prison term, was put in the witness protection program under a new name. The Gambino crime family 
would never be the same. Yeah, guys. Um, John Gotti. Well, made for a a Go ahead. So up so up and yeah. Right. So is what I've been saying. Like up and is what they call a snitch. So it's basically a person that what is it called? A what? A snitch. No, no. no. What was the term? Pantito. Pantito. Okay. Yeah. So it basically means it's a person that turns. Can you highlight it on the screen? Sure. Or do you need the screen? Well, here. No, no, no. Hang on. Here. Okay. Here we go. So it's it's basically a person that uh, collaborates to yeah the collaborators of justice in Italian criminal procedure. So um, it's basically people that collaborate with the with the prosecutor. So. Okay, so it's a clickly uh, to designate collaborators of Italian mm-hmm. of justice and Italian criminal procedure terminology who are formerly part of a criminal organization organization and decide to collaborate with the public prosecutor, the judicial. Okay. Gotcha. So I didn't know they have their own term for snitch. Yeah. So basically, they end up uh, becoming part of uh, witness wit- witness program. Witness protection. Most of them. And yeah. Sammy, I think, came out because now he's on YouTube using his real name, so it clearly came out the witness protection program. A lot of money for himself and his immediate family. Uh, in the end, however, he helped bring the Gambino crime family down to a lower level than it had been. From prison, Gotti made it known in the family that he wanted his son, John Jr., to take over. John Gotti ended up committing the same crimes within the mob that he so much hated his predecessors for. What? Why did he hate Paul Castellano? Because he hadn't earned his position. He got it, you know, because of who he was related to. Yet, in the end, what did John Gotti do? He made his son, a relatively inexperienced gangster, not much more than a kid, the boss of the family surpassing many in higher rank, hundreds with more experience who felt more deserving. So, uh, you know, he became, in many ways, what he loathed. John Jr., the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Here's a guy who has at his disposal, because of his father's name, access to sophisticated type of crime, computers, high-tech communication system. In fact, there's a lot of mob guys involved in the 900 number scheme where you call up for sex and whatever, astrology, whatever. And there's a lot of money to be made in that. But this moron is going around with a band of thugs who are hooked into weightlifting and steroids, shaking down bars and discos in Westchester, Bronx and parts of New York City. While a lot of the men didn't hold John Jr. in high regard, they didn't challenge him either. Nobody wanted to become the new Gambino boss. The risks far outweighed the glory. If I'm a mobster with a brain in my head, I don't want that job. Because once you take that job, you're an all-out target for law enforcement. I'd rather stay in the background, earn my money, have my girlfriends, enjoy myself. Why do I need that kind of attention? The remaining 200 or so Gambino members under John Jr.'s direction still operated many of the street rackets and had clout in the staples of construction and trucking. There to advise John Jr. were some of the family's elders, among them Carlos' son Tommy Gambino. Over the years, Tommy had risen to the rank of capo, but no further. He shared a remarkable likeness to his father, from his hooked nose to his gentlemanly, polite demeanor. <laughs> all of his life, Tommy felt trapped by the legacy left to him. A White House listening device planted by the FBI picked Tommy up saying this. 
Me, I never had the chance to say, well, I'm going to do something I want to do. I always did it for my family, for my children, for my father. That's a very touching statement. Poor Tommy Gambino, he always did what, we, what he was told, like a good little boy. What he was told was to control the garment district. For decades, Tommy had a stranglehold on trucking there. But in 1992, the Gambino grip was broken. Tommy, along with his younger brother and business partner, Joseph, pleaded guilty to antitrust charges. They were forced to give up much of their trucking operations. More sorrows came for Tommy in the mid-1990s when he was sentenced to five years in prison for running loan sharking and gambling operations. So the Gambino family really, in many ways, has been stripped of the legendary leadership that they had for many years. I mean, you, you go back again to what I said, uh, Vincent Mangano, Albert Anastasia, Carlo Gambino. And when I say legendary, I would stop there. Paul Castellano, he tried to wreak a lot of the, a lot of the profits that his brother-in-law left him. And John Gotti just uh, brought the family down. The family. So even FBI agents like him acknowledge that Carlo Gambino was probably one of the top bosses. It's been shattered. So you have the rise of this enormous criminal organization, then it reaches its apogee in the reign of Carlo Gambino and the reign of Paul Castellano, and then crashes, is destroyed by the reign of John Gotti. I think a final thought may be a quote from Big Paul Castellano. This life of ours, this is a wonderful life. If you can get through life like this and get away with it, Hey, that's great, but it's very unpredictable. There are so many ways you can screw it up. They screwed up in the end. And that they definitely did. So, yeah, guys, hope you guys enjoyed that podcast, man. Uh, it is now 721 in the morning, so we're going to get some sleep. Angie, last words from you? This is crazy. <laughs> Okay. And it's going to be deep as well. I mean, I'm just thinking like... See how all deep the, it was? Yeah, all the families that we need to cover, all the crimes, now everything. Now you see why I just... put this off for so long, man. Yeah. Yep. But you guys requested it and we're delivering. So we yeah, you, just, just, you just got to keep tuned to Thursdays. And yeah, basically we'll keep like regular content for Friday on Sunday. So Got y'all guys. Yeah. So do me a favor, guys, like the video, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Follow the Instagram. You have yes, Instagram follow the new Instagram, fedit. Fedit. eleven Message um, Angie on there, and she'll take your case request. Comment below. Angie looks at the comments as well, guys. So the more we see a name come through, guys, the more we're going to cover that case. So mm -hmm. let us know. You know, I know I don't want to sound like a broken record or whatever, make you guys sound like a broken record, but the more times we see a name or the more frequently is why we cover the cases, which is why we cover the yeah. mafia. It's just that with this one, I knew it was going to take a long time. So, hey, we're in it now. So next family will probably be the Colombo crime family, guys. But anyway, catch you guys on the next episode. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Peace. Our special agent with Homeland